This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 260. And the quote of the day is from the one and only Bootsy Collins, who said, If you fake the funk, your nose will grow. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's happening, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Hope you're doing well, and I hope your weekend was fantastic. I was in and out of the East Coast, uh, flew out on Friday, came back on Sunday. Just a quick trip. A great friend of mine got married. So it was good to be home sort of shortly because we weren't home very long, but uh, but it was, it was good to be out there, and now we're back. And I want to get into this conversation, but first, I want to talk about gigs real quick. If you are looking for bigger and better gigs, if you want to step up your game, you want to get higher profile gigs, you want to get better paying gigs, go to drummersresource.com forward slash gigs, G-I-G-S, and I will send you a five-part email series, 100% free, and it'll give you some great tips and tricks on how to get those bigger and better gigs. Again, drummersresource.com forward slash gigs, G-I-G-S. Now, let's get into it with Jim Payne. So Jim Payne is one of the coolest cats I've ever talked to. Well, let me let me rewind a little bit. I love funk and I love soul music. And Jim shares this same love for me. And he has been an innovator in the funk world for years. He is behind a ton of seminal funk and soul recordings. And he's also performed with a ton of famous funk and soul people. And Clyde Stubblefield called him the funkiest drummer in America. So when Clyde Stubblefield says something like that, you know it's the real deal. And Jim it shares a ton of insight on funk drumming about how he would go to to the Apollo Theater and there was and there was all sorts of people coming in there, Otis Redding and James Brown and BB King and all these people and just some amazing stories and he himself had not only a great career, but a winding career, went all over the place and he, you know, he went to Yale and Columbia and all. there's a lot of stuff that he's done in his life. It's truly amazing the winding road that his career went. And now he is sort of close to me. He's uh, here out, out here in California. So looking forward to seeing him in person. But I'm really excited to share this interview with you because I don't, I I feel like he is less of a well-known name in the funk world to the layperson. And I want to share his story and his amazing insights into the funk world with everybody. So here we are without further ado, Jim Payne. Jim, how are you, my man? Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate uh, you having me on the show, man. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We're sort of, I guess, we're almost. We could almost say that we're neighbors. You're, we're about. What are we about? An hour and a half away from each other? Well, it's a little more than that. More like three hours. But around California, that's uh, that's doable. You it's know? three. Is it really three hours for us? From us for us to really get to San Francisco and then up up to Livermore, yeah, it would be three hours. Hmm. All right. Well, two and a half, depending on who's driving. Right, right, right. <laughs> I bet I'll have to make the trip sometime, though. Oh um, yeah, we gotta we gotta hang out somewhere. That would be that would be amazing. There's there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. One, I mean, we talked off air. I'm 
totally into the funk scene. I love, I love a lot of the work that you've done. I love a lot of the records that you've worked on. Um, right. And I think the music that speaks to you is the same music that speaks to me. Uh, before we get really deep into that, I want to get just for, for content, you know, to build a little bit of the context of where this all started. So how sort of how you got into playing, how you got into funk and, and where it all started. Cause you have a very storied past too, that I want to, that's fascinating to me that I want to talk about. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I mean, it all, you know, I guess it started way back when I was, uh, uh, you know, I was in the, my parents were like, somebody's got in the, in the, in the, in the house has got to play music. My mother was a piano player, played mm-hmm. the piano. So, uh, I went to a, a, a school, uh, auditorium and they had different people playing. One guy played the accordion. I thought, well, this is really cool. He sounds like a whole band. So I said, okay, I'll play the accordion. Didn't realize it was one of the, you know, sort of a very weird instrument. It happened to be in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where there's a big Polish community and it was a big deal there. You know? mm-hmm. anyway, it's a hard took, instrument to play too, right? Yeah, it is. You play, so you're playing the bass with the left hand. There's 140 buttons over there and then you got the keyboard over here. So uh, it, was, it was pretty challenging. And in fact, it was so challenging that after about a year and a half, I sort of faded out of it. <laughs> and then I used to go to the, the, the lessons, you know, and... Uh, I would have, well, one thing I had, I, the last thing that got, I was in a band with a hundred accordions and that was like pretty weird. Um, I found out then that if you didn't know what you were doing, you could kind of lay out and nobody knew, you know, <laughs> especially so, when there's 140 people. In the I know it was like really weird, but anyway, Bridgeport, Connecticut. So, uh, they Wait, gave first of all, I have to stop you. Go Why ahead. is there a band with 140 accordions in it? I don't know. It was a huge room <laughs> in Bridgeport and that was like an orchestra of accordions. And uh, it was such a big deal. There, it probably they, sounds pretty amazing, though, huh? You know, I don't remember if it was if we were playing different parts. I, I assume right. we were, you know, right? Like, uh, but uh, so I wasn't very good at practicing that. And eventually, my teacher gave me to her son, which, who also played. But then I would not come to the lessons prepared, and and he also played the drums. So, well, he said, "Well, you got to practice now." So at the lesson, I was practicing. And he was over in the corner with a little drum pad, you know, and I was like, hmm, that looks like a lot more fun than what I'm doing, you know. So, so I eventually traded in the accordion and got a, you know, a set of Ludwigs, uh, you know, just snare and bass drum and cymbal and hi-hat and uh, no toms at that time. Mm-hmm. So I started into it there. And then uh, I had no formal training. Uh, I just played the records and uh, – and then I had some buddies who, who had a band, you know, which was great because they, they needed a drummer. So uh, we started a band called the Deltrons. And, uh, you know, we played around uh, different parties and stuff, you know, doo-wop, really. It was a lot mm-hmm. of doo-wop and that kind of stuff. And uh, so that's how I got started. And then uh, just kept playing through. I played through high school, had a band there uh, called the Duquesnes, which was got when then we got started getting in more into uh, uh, no, that, that band was called the Invictus and that was like the whole, you know, kind of, uh, walk, don't run the ventures and all that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that happened back then. Right. And then when I got to college, it was the Duquesnes and that became more R and B. I got And you. then we had, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, I guess there was like three singers and, uh, four rhythm section, you know, we had seven piece band and, mm-hmm. and then we were doing stuff, uh, you know, more like, uh, what shall I say, you know, kind of not like really Fat Domino, but some James Brown stuff and, uh, you know, real serious, more New Orleans type R&B, whatever it was and whatever was popular, you know, on the radio. And we, we I did that for on and the what, weekend. Y- what for, year are we talking now? 
Now we're talking uh, 1965. 65. So were you a quick study though? I mean, did you did you sort of take to the drums quickly, or was it was it a painful process? Well, that's no, I I loved it. You know, I, mm -hmm. I used to dance a lot, and I liked the whole rhythmic thing. And then, uh, you know, when I figured out you play eighth notes with the right hand, and you play back beats on two and four, and then then the rest of it was kind of whatever you could do. So uh, I mean, I was in a good situation in that. You know, nobody else in the band knew anything either. You know, so right. we were like, <laughs> they don't uh, know if the, you're doing anything wrong or right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're on the same page. You know, like so that's that's the way to do. It. I always tell my students, you know, to like find some people, go to jam sessions, and eventually you'll meet people who are right where you are. You know, because mm -hmm. people say, "Well, I'm not ready yet, man. I want to keep practicing." You know, I said, "Forget it. Go find some people and start playing." You know, with them. Right. So that was I kind of came up. You know, in that school of just going for it you know and trying it out and so we uh so we played a lot uh in college mm -hmm. at uh at fraternities all over the east coast you know and uh, on the weekend so that became a serious thing and then i kind of slacked off on my studies a bit you know because i was so into the music you know i had a basement that i used to go to i try always trying to figure out what it turns out i didn't know who it was but clayton filio drummer for james brown was playing on this song called Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, which was like a, uh, a live song on a record, uh, which was called Pure Dynamite, which is a, uh, an LP. I don't see it around much, but it, it, it was kind of a odd LP. They kind of, uh, they brought in applause, you know, they, mm -hmm. they hand applause, it's kind of weird, but it's really got some incredible, it's a live show, you know, at the, I think it's at the Royal or somewhere in Philadelphia, um, Baltimore, I guess it is. But uh, I was always in the basement trying to figure out what was he doing on that song, which was kind of the deal of James Brown, which is I never could figure, you know, I had my my uh, turntable and the thing, you know, was going back and forth. With sure. And that was, you know, that was like so anyway, eventually I saw a guy in in uh, in Fairfield, Connecticut uh, doing it. Uh, with a local band and then figured it out. I'm trying to, I can't think of his name, but it's a Bobby Lindsay band. So, uh, you know, then, uh, what can I say? And then I started going to the Apollo right around that time, around 1968, you know, we took trips from college into, from New Haven into New York. Mm -hmm. And so after that, my mind got blown. I went, I went to the, I saw BB King and that was like, you know, the hair on the end, back of my neck just sort of stood up, you know, the yeah. holy crap, you know, like Sonny Freeman on drums and, and a, you know, a band with several horns and stuff. And B.B. Right. King was like killing it, you know. And then uh, I'd go back to the Apollo. I would see James Brown. I must have seen him 12 times. I would sit in the in the balcony, you know, bring my lunch. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, at the Apollo, they have uh, on weekends, they have like five shows. The only problem uh, is that you have to wait through a, like a B movie in between each show. Oh, you know? uh, so really? I go up there, <laughs> really be patient, you know, because uh, it was a lot of time, and I probably, you know, I'd see two shows, and then I then I'd split. But mm -hmm. that was really my uh, my education, you know. And then I would go back and try to duplicate what I heard from. Some it's of interesting because that, that's a rough. That was a rough neighborhood then. It, well, it was, but you know, right around this was kind of a really good time because. Uh, it was before sort of uh, Malcolm X mm -hmm. and all that stuff happened, you know, which kind of turned a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, Afro-Americans sort of against white people. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
but it was before then and they welcomed me in. It was like, Oh, come on in. You know, like, and I'd sit up in the balcony, as I said, you know, and nobody would bother me. And I, I could, you know, there could be a sea of, of Afro-Americans there, you know, and it was no problem. But then eventually as it got a little bit later, uh, you know, and that whole thing happened then then I had to stop going there cause it was a little bit, uh, it was a little rough. Yeah. Really? Really? Well, I just remember I went down walking to the Apollo from the subway, which was somehow a little bit further away than I thought. Uh, there was some guys in a vacant lot and they pointed at me and said, Oh, there's, there's the white devil. Uh, you know, so I was like, oh, man, you know, really, maybe I uh, shouldn't be here. Right? Yeah, <laughs> so I was alone at the time, you know, the, well, sure. So anyway, I did stop kind of going there, but I had, but I went for several years and, uh, you know, I think I was there really at the the peak of, of that kind of stuff. I mean, I right. saw everybody, you know, Otis Redding, all the groups, you know, the Contours, the Coasters, the the Shirelles, uh, right. early Motown, you know, the Supremes were there. And Gatson was playing with some of those guys, wasn't uh, yeah. he? Yeah. I, I don't really know, but I know he's, I, I love that guy. I don't really know who was playing with a lot. Of, I know yeah, sure. Charlie Persip played in the band for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know King Curtis was uh, was leading the band a lot, and I, and I think uh, uh, I can't remember the names of the different. And there was one guy, name similar to yours, a white dude who who was playing. He was great too. I mean, it was like it seemed to be a lot, a little bit looser then, mm-hmm. although ninety nine point nine percent you know black there. Right. But uh, it was such an education. Uh, to see all these bands come through. I mean, a lot of them were, you know, there were several bands. It was like, there was B.B. King had a band, uh, and uh, Bobby Blue Bland had a band, mm-hmm. and could have Jabbo Starks playing, I don't even know, but I know he played, he did a lot of his recordings, you know, all right. the big hits. Mm-hmm. And then there was, uh, and I saw Otis, but it was before Otis had a band. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, and he, you know, got really big. Sort of before band. Otis was Otis. Yeah, he yeah. came out and sang Pain in My Heart, and the girls went wild, you know, and then right. he sang one other tune. I think I've been loving you too long or something, and, they, and then he went off, and all the girls just couldn't stand it. <laughs> uh, there was, so that, you and, mentioned. And what, there was one more band I want to mention, so that James Brown. So those right. were the three real big bands, and the rest of them, like the Supremes and everyone, would come in, and they would get backed up mm-hmm. by the Apollo. Okay. I got Go you. I got you. Um, I wanted to backtrack before I forgot about you were saying sign sealed delivered. Is that does that have anything to do with the Stevie Wonder tune, or did is there two totally different songs? Totally different songs. And yeah. what was the what was the record that it was off of? It was called Pure Dynamite. Yeah, I want to look that up and leave it in the show notes for everybody to sort of check it out if they want LP. to. I'm not sure what the status of it is now. I mean, I, I have a copy, but I don't. I have. I think I have recorded that one song that made it into an MP3, but. Uh, Anyway, it's a pretty rare record, but it could be out there in some respects. I right, yeah, I'd, l- I'd be interested to do some research on it. Uh, the other question was what we were talking about. So, you know, traditionally, you're, for, for lack of better words, you're, everything you were listening to is quote-unquote black music at the time, right? And so then you have, you know, not without getting political, then you have, you know, Malcolm X comes on the scene, things, tension in the United States, I think, gets a little a little high, Right. Yeah. Does that does that start to change your opinion of the music that you're listening to, or were you sort of turning a blind eye to that and just saying, "Hey, I love this music, and I'm just going to keep doing this anyway"? Yeah, your your second thought. I mean, I, you know, even in the band we had in college, we ended we had three black guys from the from the hood right. <laughs> who sang, and 
for white guys who are in college. You know, so we had a thing happening, and then and then after at the near the end, when the Malcolm X thing happened, the the black some of the black guys got suspicious. You know, it was like, well, you know, maybe these white guys are taking the money. You know, or taking right. all. They they accused us of like not. One of them did accuse us of not, you know, being fair about the money. And mm-hmm. we, all the money was divided evenly every, right, right. every gig, you know, so that was not true. But like you say, that, that kind of tainted the whole thing. Uh, you know, eventually we, we left college and that was the end of that band. But, but I did, I never, I thought that was the politics. And I, I was upset about it and, uh, you know, did what I could to, to, to negate all of that and to make it, you know, make everybody uh, you know, friendly about everything, but it did, it didn't affect my opinion, but it did, it did influence, you know, the what relationship done. It's like, I mean, right. I was, it's, it's kind of built in. I mean, let's face it, you know, like if mm-hmm. that's, that's a culture of black culture, it's difficult for, for a white guy like me to get into it, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, understandably same with Latin. I mean, I studied Latin, did a lot of Latin stuff and, you know, they don't, they don't want a Latin timbalero, you know, it's like, I mean, a, a white timbalero, it's like, that's <laughs> their thing, you know, it's like, sure. And, uh, you know, I can understand that, but, mm-hmm. but, but I, I have been successful in, in breaking through that, you know, right. I think a lot right. of the people I played with and gigs that I've done, you know, so I'm, I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. I, I played with a guitar player for 10 years, uh, his name's Jeffrey Washington and he, he's played with Melba Moore, Misha Paris and all these guys, all these uh-huh. people. And, you know, we were, we were at a gig and I, I forget exactly what happened. And he thought that the guy was sort of being prejudiced towards him. And mm-hmm. I, I was like trying to calm him down. And the one thing that he said to me that really resonated, he said, you know, you've never been on tour where you had to sleep in a separate hotel room than the rest of the band. And you've yeah. never gone into a restaurant with the band and not be allowed to eat there. And I said, you know what, Jeff, you are, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And I sort of, and I sort of had to like step back and say, okay, I, I now I respect that because not that I didn't respect it before, but now that gives me a totally different vantage point. You know, and I was yeah. like, and, and I love, I'm mean, Jeff is, I love that guy dearly. He's one of my best friends now, uh, you know, after playing with him for so many years yeah. and I felt like I need, I was like, I, I, I get it. I'm sorry. You know, and I, yeah. I, I felt horrible afterwards, but I didn't, you know, I don't, I never had that experience, nor did you, you know, so, right. Yeah. So I can see no, where it's, it's, yeah, you have to give them some slack. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm starting to read the, the, what the, I don't know how many, the fourth James Brown, uh, biography it's called uh kill him kill him and leave i don't know if you've if you've read that one no and uh uh mcbride i think the guy's name is who wrote it i don't i don't have it with me it's up at the house but um and i see he's coming from that situation you know the south what's going on down there where was james brown from and what was the situation you know Mm -hmm. and all of the kind of two-faced kind of uh understood and not said things that go on you know that, that still go on you know Right in that in that uh, in that area in of the t- of the country and, and in all areas, but it's it's deep, you know. Mm-hmm. It's really deep. Mm-hmm. You know? it's, it's hard to yeah get beyond it. And it's a it's a weird thing because it's it's part of our culture, good or bad. It's it's part of the the American right. culture, and and you know not that that not that it makes it right, but it's just it's sort of what we what we're dealing with, you know, as right. a country that we all need to to get over. I think a music and I think music is a good way to, to help Man. bring everybody together. Absolutely. You Absolutely. Know? And I'm, you know, very impressed by a lot of the, the openness of, of blacks in, uh, you know, welcoming white people into their bands, you know, mm-hmm. or think, well, this guy's great. I'm going to, you know, I'll hire him. You know, it's like, 
I mean, and not being prejudiced about it. I mean, they're, I think they're, you know, something, some of, you know, are more open than us and to some extent, you know, sure. if the guy plays good, I mean, you know, that's where the music I think gets the best, you know, mm-hmm. when you have the different cultures kind of interacting and, and respecting each other. I mean, guys that are, I was trying to, who was it? The, I was looking at a band and it was, it was a black leader and the rest of the band was white. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I think it was Kenny Garrett and I forget who, who was in his band, but it was like, you know, it was a, it, it was a great band. And, uh, that kind of interaction between uh, peoples and cultures is, I think, really makes the music uh, yeah. better. You know? I, I agree with that 100%. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You, you talked about college, and you went to Yale, and you got your MBA from Columbia. Yeah. How does that all tie in? Was there, I mean, when you were getting into college, were you thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a professional musician, but I still want to you know, go to school and pursue the business route? Or were you saying, <laughs> oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with music and I better go get a good degree? Well, no, that was, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I got, when I got into college and started really getting into the music, I was really, oh, I really want to do, do something with this. And, you know, uh, in, a, in a sense, I was kind of just foolish in a way. I never went to music school. It was right there. You know, I used to, I used to, I would go by the, the Yale Music School and look, listen in the door, you know, and I'd hear these mm-hmm. people singing like Gregorian chants and stuff, you know, and I was like, man, that, that ain't rock and roll, you know, so right. it was like I just ignored it, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to realize that your training and all that is very valuable, you know, so I just kind of ignored it and kept on going, mm-hmm. and then it was like, well, what are you going to do, and, you know, I'll tell you, it was, a, it was a family thing, I mean, my father is a lawyer, my mm-hmm. brother was a few years older than me. He became a lawyer. And wow, it was like, the pressure you know, was on? The pressure was on. You know, it was like uh, they did. They were not interested in me having a music career, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was it Were was you interested in being a lawyer? No, not at all. No, no. Not at all. I mean, I, no. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't me. You know, I'm not into that, you know, kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So, I mean, not that they aren't, there aren't good lawyers and everything like that, but. Right. So I basically kind of went along and said, okay, dad, you know, I'll, I'll, well, I'll go to business school because that was like two years mm-hmm. and lawyers were three years, you know, in terms of that. So I just, and then I moved to New York to go to business school and, uh, you know, I would go to the library and read billboard, you know, but I actually, you know, I did pretty well. I got through the school and everything and got my degree, but, uh, you and know, it brought I, you to New York and it brought me to New York. And that was, that was the main thing because then, uh, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's nothing. I got that. Um, and then I, I met, uh, you know, being in New York was was it, you know, because then I met some people. I had a, there was a band that I was in at the end of my Yale years. A couple, they were guys who were a couple years behind me, and they were they were called the Five Card Stud, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a great manager uh, who was from L.A. Tom Curtis, his name wasn't, and. Uh, he was really aggressive and got us got us some gig. In fact, we opened for Otis Redding in Central Park, which was a nice. you know life changing experience. Uh, but when I was in New York with that band, uh, we recorded, and uh, we recorded for a label called Redbird, uh, and uh, we recorded a you know I don't know an EP or something, and it mm-hmm. actually did pretty well. It became number one in Raleigh, North Carolina. <laughs> so we went down there and toured around North Carolina. But I met the engineer, you know, who did the who did the session. And uh, just a, a little sidelight, you know, when we got in the studio, uh, all set to do this song, the engineer said, well, I think what we'll do is we'll do the music first and then we'll overdub, you know, the vocals. Right. 
And I had never done that before. You know, that was, was like, like a new concept, right? Man, I was like, if I didn't hear the words, I didn't know where I was. You know? so, right. so I realized right then that you got to be a lot more hip and know what the structure of the song is and, you know, how many measures until the bridge and are there any figures. And mm-hmm. you know, I could do it with everybody and the singer. But the, so that really turned me around to get a little more serious about my my music education. But I met the engineer. Uh, what's his name? Can't remember his name right now. He's pretty well known. He did a lot of stuff with Phil Spector. Mm, okay. And uh, he would let me come to recording sessions. And then I would come to the recording session, sit in the control booth, like in the back on the floor or something, you know. Right. And then I got to watch what was happening. And I you know, saw a lot of great sessions, you know, a lot of jingles and stuff like that, you know, but uh, some was, great drummers. That was big business then. Oh, man. Those guys were cooking. You know, they yeah. do they do this jingle and then they'd, they'd all be on the phone and they'd run out to the next one. You know, I mean, they mm-hmm. did like, three or four of them in a day just working like crazy, like, you know, like Bernard Purdy and, and, and Gad. Yeah. And uh, that whole scene was like fascinating, you know, great musicians mm-hmm. and they were making money. Yeah. You know, so I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this is okay. You know, like <laughs> as far as, you know, and so that really, you know, I said, if you're good enough, you know, and you can get in there with these guys, they were making good money, you know? Mm-hmm. So, that really encouraged me, uh, like I was saying earlier, when I got to New York, then the whole thing kind of like, maybe this is going to work, you know? So, right. so were, I, I were you more that. attracted to being in the studio than being on the road? Well, I didn't really know what the road was like, you know? Yeah. I think that was it. I was, I was thinking I might try to go for that, you know, although mm-hmm. I didn't know how to read music at the time. Uh, you know, so I had a lot to do. I had a lot to, a lot to, to work on to get to that point. Right. But I thought I could do that, yeah. So when you uh, you'd mentioned Gad and, and Bernard, I'm guessing this is all in New York then still, right? Yes, yes. So what? how did how did you end up going from New York to Florida? To, I, it's uh, fascinating yeah. how, how the, <laughs> the places that you've, that you've bounced around to and left your mark in each one of these, in well, each one you. of these areas. Thank you. I mean, what, that happened through college. Uh, there was a guy in college, Bob Greenlee, who was a bass player. And also played baritone sax. And we played in a band called, uh, let's see, well, there was a, several, uh, what do they call it, um, versions of this band. One was, uh, oh, God, I got to think of that. Uh, anyway, it became Root Boy Slim in the Sex Change Band, which was really weird. I mean, there was a guy, uh, print, oh, no, first it was Prince Lala and the Midnight Creepers. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy at Yale, amazingly enough, who was, Ken McKenzie, who was the son of a of a you know mucky muck down in D.C. I don't know, a senator or something. This guy loved black music, and he was like, "This is it." He was like the next James Brown, you know. So mm-hmm. he would come on with his hair all slicked back, and you know, all you know, all kinds of fancy clothes and everything. And but he basically he was kind of a drug addict. You know, <laughs> it was it was it was crazy. Anyway, we had a, a sort of a soul band there, mm-hmm. and uh, Bob Greenlee was my my good buddy, and and then, uh, you know, different incarnations. That's what I'm, that's what I'm talking. That was the word I was looking at. But, uh, you know, several bands later, you know, one in, in New York, I, uh, worked with, uh, we did, we had a band called Slickophonics, which was a very successful band. And, uh, we did a lot of touring with them for about five years. And then when that band kind of broke up, then, uh, I was in contact with Bob Greenlee, and Bob Greenlee was from uh, near Orlando, Florida, mm-hmm. a place called uh, Sanford. And he 
after college, he went down there and opened a studio called King Snake Studios. Uh, and so okay. when the Slickophonics kind of disbanded, which I consider one of the you know the best bands I've ever really been in, I'm trying to try to re-release some of their stuff. I was listening to it the other day with a guitar player, Al Jaffe, who came to visit me. And I was like, wow, this sounds pretty good. <laughs> You know, we were a pretty good band. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You forget it. Well, anyway, so, uh, so I went down there to get out of New York for a while. You know, and the band had kind of split up. It was kind of a drag, and um, and I ended up, you know, being the, the studio drummer in his studio, which is, you know, kind of what I what we had talked about earlier, which I always wanted to do. And he had a, a stable of artists coming through there. You know, uh, Kenny Neal, Lucky Peterson. Uh, we, we did some country music, Razzie Bailey, but most of it was R and B, you know, we, they did, uh, actually Rufus Thomas, uh, uh, I, and I started writing a lot of songs. I wrote songs for them mm-hmm. and he was distributed through alligator records. It was a really good time for three years. We did a lot of, uh, had a lot of sessions and had a lot of fun and, uh, and did some road tours. We went to Europe with the King snake review, a singer named Yvonne Jackson that I, that I produced and wrote songs for one of my mm-hmm. favorite. So were you working out of his studio the whole time or did you, Yeah, did you have yours, your own? No, I never, I never really had my own studio other than here now, finally in California where I can uh, do videos and stuff like that. But I'm not like a, I'm not like a technical guy particularly, you know, right. Right. Or less a producer. I've done a lot of producing, Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more into the drums and and kind of organization and writing. I've written a bunch of books, you know, uh, Sure. Which you probably know about, but mm-hmm. so yeah. Well, so then after New York, I got into it, and then I never let it go, and you know went through various uh, various groups. You know, mm-hmm. talk to me about the. I read somewhere that you you spent. I don't want to say a lot of time, but you spent some time at the Stack Studio in Memphis. Yes, I well, what, yeah. I I'm fascinated by Stacks, and uh, just tell like what what was that place like? I mean, what it, what was that vibe like? And I'm sure it had a a lasting effect on you, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, just to back up a little bit, you know, after college and after that band, the five card stood, uh, I went into the Navy for a while, only for three months. I got out of it cause I didn't really want to kill people. And I told them that and they didn't like that. So <laughs> they're anyway, in the, they're in the, basic, the killing people business. <laughs> yeah. That was basically what it was, you know, but, uh, uh, at that point, uh, uh, Bob Greenlee had just graduated from, from uh, Yale or he was in his last year and he, he had this house near, near New Haven and he started a band. So I went there and started playing with him. Um, and uh, so now I'm getting lost as to where we are. What are we, I'm trying to figure out. Uh, how it led to stacks. How it led to stacks. Exactly. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and it was an original band. We were kind of into the, uh, you know, at that time it was the band was, uh, was one of our real idols, you know, mm-hmm. sort of funky and, you know, but saying something, you know, with the lyrics right. and right. So we had a bunch of tunes, Bob had written a bunch of tunes and other people in the band and said, well, let's, uh, let's see if we can get some, uh, stacks people to record this stuff. It was mm-hmm. funky, you know, so I said, okay, okay. So, so I drove down there with a bunch of tunes and uh, walked in the door and it was, you know, it was a movie theater. And so you walk in the front door like you where the tickets are sold, you know, and then you and then there's a bunch of kind of offices and stuff in there converted. And then there was the big theater where all the seats were and the seats were taken out and they had kind of 
that you walked down a little bit towards the towards the stage, and then the, there was a big section where they had leveled off the the floor, mm-hmm. and that was where the drums were, Al Jackson's drums, and they had some booths there for the horns, and that's where the piano was, uh, you know, grand piano, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of a converted. It was a seriously converted movie theater, and then in the where where you have the stage where the screen was, that was walled off, and they had glass or whatever. And on the stage, looking back towards the the theater, towards the people, was the control booth. And uh, so I went in there, and and uh, and Cropper was amazing, really friendly. You know, he said, "Well, let's you know, let's sit down, let's listen to some of this stuff." You know, we listened to a bunch of it. And, uh, you know, he took me out to lunch and, you know, I met all the guys, you know. Right. And it was like, you know, you walk in and out, different, you know, Booker T was here and there. And, you know, nice. I, uh, uh, Albert King was hanging out, you know, I interviewed him. Uh, they, they were really, really friendly. And uh, and the songwriters had their things, you know, the what, I can't think of their names right now, but, you know, they were there. Right. And, uh. Al Jackson was not there, unfortunately, so I didn't really get to uh, to meet him. But um, and Cropper was like, okay, you know, after after this sort of fell out and everything, after you know, we I left. He said, yeah, well, I think we we take you know two or three of these tunes. Yeah, we could do something. And you know, I didn't. We didn't know anything. You know, we were like babies in the woods or whatever. It's like you know, <laughs> so we had heard about this publishing thing, you know, and I went, well, publishing, man, you got to keep the publishing, you know, it's like, because otherwise you get screwed by these, you know, these moguls, whatever. So we insisted that we keep the publishing, you know, I don't, I didn't know at that point, the idea is you split the publishing, you know? Mm-hmm. So they had their company East West or whatever, and they would split it with us, you know, which would be a great deal, a common, very common deal, but we yeah. didn't know at the time. So, no, we, well, we, gonna, we don't want to give the publishing away. So we never give we never gave them any of the songs, which well, that's was good, really then. for a move because they would have recorded them. We might have made some money on them, you know. But, ah, right, right. But to your to your to your question, I mean, it was so friendly down there, you know, mm-hmm. and they were open, and everything was really, really cool. And uh, uh, I went back there another time, second time, and that was that was cool too. There's a lot of well, you know, there's a lot of stories, but. Uh, anyway, the third time I went back was after Martin Luther King got shot and there was a chain link fence around the whole place and you had to go in the back and, uh, it was like totally different. You know, I could, you know, I had to leave a message to Cropper saying, I'm here, you know, if you want to come out and say, and he came out and said, hi, but he said, things have changed. And, you know, what happened was the whole company got, got changed and got, um, different leadership. And, uh, it just, uh, became a different thing you know really? uh, it became well you know well, like we were talking i mean there's a lot of inequality especially mm-hmm. in memphis you know of course um and so there was a big cry well stacks has got to be uh, run by black people man it was and it was it was you know originally won by run by this guy uh was it axton axton was his sister and then i forget the guy who named who, who was the president who ran it and they mm-hmm. were both white whatever right so and there was a, you know, an understandable cry about, you know, it should be black ownership or whatever. So right. it ended up, that's what happened. Another person moved in. And then it became really like, you know, it's, I don't know how I hope people take this the right way, but it was, it became kind of oriented towards blacks and not, and that element of whites that we were talking about, the mixture got lost, you know, and then it I became, 
a very different animal, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, after Martin Luther King got shot, you have to understand that it was like horrible, you know. Yeah, of course. So there was a lot of backlash, and uh, unfortunately, I think Stax got caught up in the backlash, and mm-hmm. then you know, Cropper moved to moved to Nashville, and you know, people it kind of disbanded. You know, it's like anything; you have a core, uh, like the James Brown Band. You know, from whatever '65 to '73 was like, man, that was it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of I was lucky to be there at Stax in that, I think, real peak period, you know? And of course, then the other problem was that when I, that Otis got killed, you know, mm-hmm. Otis died in a plane crash. And then Cropper was saying, well, you know, he was, he was our big guy at that point, you know, right. he was huge. You know? And when he, they lost him, they kind of took the, the air out of the whole thing. You know, they had to, what are you going to do to replace Otis? You know, so right. that was a problem that happened down there. But when I first went down there, man, that was the, that was it, man. and they were all friendly. They, you know, it was it was great. It was wonderful. Man, that's I. Just the the entire history of that. I didn't realize sort of uh, toward the end of it. You know what all of all of the things that happened. So that's just interesting to. Le- I'm learning this as we're as we're talking, but I'm fascinated with with Stack and yeah. and a lot. You know, the recordings of of Stacks are. They were very very into you know the jukebox sound and and getting this getting the getting it louder, you know, that was a big deal back then, you know, mm-hmm. so when you put your tune on the radio, it's got to like get loud. They had, they had actually Seberg jukebox speakers in the, in the control room, which they would mix on, you know, those, they had horns on the top yeah. and they were big square things. Uh, you know, the drums were very, very muffled, you know, I, mean, I actually mm-hmm. sat behind the drums and tweaked and played a little bit, you know, the cymbal, it sounded like it was all taped up. It, it was like a dead symbol, you know, and it was, right. I think it was only one. I mean, he hardly ever played the, the symbols, but, uh, and I, they did that for recording, I guess, you know, and of course, you know, Al Jackson put his wallet on the snare drum, mm-hmm. you know, which is a common way of deadening it. And that really deadened the hell out of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was all about, you know, hi-hat, snare drum, bass drum, and possibly symbol, maybe a few toms. One, he had one, he had two toms, I think. You know, that was mm-hmm. it. But it was a very uh, a little riser there, a very dead, dead sounding uh, set, which you can hear on the recordings. But they they knew what they were doing. You know, they, and and they made that it, it it came through on recordings, and it came through with the radio, and and it was a it was a, you know it was a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting just the the techniques that are used that it sounds so much it sounds so different in the studio than it does in the finished product you know if you're hearing it live yeah. versus the recorded version of it and so oh well that okay that's that's what it sounds like yeah it's, I mean that, that's why the, the engineers want to you know do their thing and they, and to to do their thing they want you to do their thing too I mean of course to, to muffle it and whatever and then they fix it up in the studio it's, mm-hmm. that's the way it is. I'm sure it's no surprise that DW is still a sponsor on this podcast, and it also should come to no surprise that they are one of the leaders in the drumming world. Why? Because they started in 1964 in Los Angeles, and they've been innovating ever since. And now they have a ton of other brands that are underneath them, like the Gretsch brand and LP and Gibraltar, PDP. They have all of these great brands, and guess what? They're still here. They're right here in Oxnard, California. And if you're in LA, you can drive up and you can visit them and you can get a tour of the factory and you can see where they make these drums by hand in Oxnard, California. I definitely recommend that you do that. And also thank them very much for keeping this podcast free for all of you. And you can do that on social media 
and just let them know that you appreciate them supporting the podcast. Are you gigging or touring or always on the road? You can keep your drumsticks at your side with Promark's new premium stick bags. Each style adds convenience for both on and off the stage. The Transport Deluxe features ample stick storage, metal hanging tom mounts, and leather interior pockets. With the Silver Essentials bag features room for four pairs of sticks, a drum key pocket, and metal hooks to hang on your floor tom. They're made with durable, waterproof nylon and synthetic leather. And these bags are built to keep up with the drummer who's always heading to the next gig. You can learn more about these bags at Promark.com. Tackle your technique hangups by having experts address topics such as grip, independence, coordination, mobility, and creativity. The drum technique courses offered at the drum program at Musicians Institute will set you on the right path to growth. Learn more at mi.edu. Musicians Institute. Instrumental in life. Now let's get back into it with Jim Payne. I know that you worked with Modesky Martin and Wood. I've had Billy Martin uh, on on the podcast. I've been a huge I've been a huge MMW fan. I've listened, you know, all of their records. It's a Jungle in Here is is uh, oh yeah is a great record. Um, I know that you've worked with Mike Clark and and Paul Jackson and the uh, now like th- looking at it now. I guess a lot of these records I don't want to say have the same sound, but they have the same vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that is that a reflection of what you're doing uh, in the studio or is that a reflection of these people having that vibe and they know you're the guy to capture it correctly? Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, we were with both of those situations. We were definitely on the same page. You know, mm-hmm. I had, I was doing some pr- uh, producing for Grammar vision records um, in New York. And uh, you know, I, w- I had done some stuff and I was looking around for some, uh, I did my own thing called New York funk. Mm-hmm. With a lot of great, you know, Clyde Subtlety was on that one, and a lot of several different groups. Uh, I ended up doing something with Pee Wee Ellis, which was great, called Blues Mission. And at one point, I was okay. Well, that was it for that. It'd been several months, and I got to get something else happening. So I looked around, heard about some stuff, and so I went downtown and I heard uh, Medeski, Martin, and Wood, and I was like, yeah, this is, you know, what I was looking for was kind of funky instrumental stuff. At that point, I wasn't really interested in vocal, you know, more pop music. I was mm-hmm. pop R and B, whatever you want to call it, you know? And so that seemed to be exactly what they were into. You know, they were funky. Billy was great. And, uh, you know, John was great. They were, they were all, you know, really into it and they had their thing together, you know? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that difficult for me. It was just as, and I had a great, uh, engineer, Steve, uh, but I can't think of his name right now, but, uh, as far as the sound, it kind of, you know, left it up to him. He knew what he, I'm, as I said, I'm not technical, but I right. would say, you know, more of this, more of that. And that's not working, you know, the usual producer thing mm-hmm. and, uh, shaped it kind of, you know, but they had done all the rehearsing, you know, that they needed to do. They knew what they were going to do. And so it was pretty simple to kind of run it down and tweak it up. And, you know, uh, and it came out, I think really, really nicely loose and, uh, mm-hmm. It's a great record. It was, you know, some of their some of their best stuff. And sure. You know, I mean with Mike Clark, we had been, you know, buddies for a while. And uh actually I was down in Florida working uh at that studio at Kingsnake. And uh uh I had some dough and so I thought, well, let's uh you know, I'd always wanted to do something with Mike and so they came down there. He came down there with uh, Jeff Pitson, the piano player, and Kenny Garrett and Paul Jackson mm-hmm. came from uh 
came from Japan. He was he was living in Japan, and so oh, was he? Yeah, hmm. and he still he. I just saw someone. He's been there for thirty years or something. Wow, he's a big star over there. But they came down to Florida, and we went to a studio, another place that I, I knew. It wasn't King Snake, actually. It was another studio in Orlando, and the drum, the engineer was great. Got in there, and uh, you know, we didn't really have anything particular, you know. And they had done a uh, they had done a, a, a educational thing over in Japan, so they had a couple of grooves, you know. Mm-hmm. So we ended up kind of making everything up and uh, used some grooves, and then got in there. And Kenny Garrett came up with some lines, and uh, you know, fortunately, which I think is, you know, one of the best ways to do it, if you have the right people, and if you can right there, get a groove, put something on it, shape it up, make it happen. I'm really proud of that record. The Funk Stops Here, it's called, which mm-hmm. is, you know, never oh, really know done much. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're one of the, one of the few. I'm going to re-release <laughs> that one too, digitally, I think, along with the other things that I've done. Uh, I don't know if that's totally legal or not, but... I don't think anybody really, the ones that I, that my own records, you know, that I've done myself with my band, those I got no problem, which I'm going to put out there too. But so that was my experience. And Mike and I are close buddies. And we, I just saw him about uh, a week ago up in San Francisco. He was in town. Oh yeah. I saw doing, that. Yeah. Doing some gigs. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we, we stay in touch and, you know, he's, uh, he's unbelievable. And not only as a drummer, but he's a, you know, he's a very uh, strong guy. We're both, uh, you know, Chanters. We're both Nietzschean uh, Buddhist uh, chanters chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, which is, you know, Herbie Hancock is into it and Buster Williams, a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mike is a very strong guy and he's out there doing it, you know, yeah. today, you know, yeah. on the road, carrying his symbols around, you know, yep. getting on a plane and all that. Yeah, so man. I, I really respect him. So are you, um, I, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talked about in terms of styles, um, are you more of a, like a horn, a horn funk soul guy, or do you dig like the organ trio stuff and mm-hmm. and all that? Well, you've touched on my two favorite things, man. <laughs> I, you know, after the, the slick of phonics, which a lot of people haven't heard of, I encourage you to check it out. You know, slick of phonics, P H O slick S L I C K P H O N I C S. There's I'll link to it in YouTube. the uh, in the show notes too, so everybody can check it out. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there is some stuff on in you on YouTube, and there's, and there's one record I think it's on Spotify called Wow Bag W O W, which is the first record we did, and, and in some ways the the funkiest. Um, and and then we had a, a trombone player Ray Anderson, amazing mm-hmm. trombone player, and Steve Elson on the saxophone, and then we had Mark Elias on bass, uh, myself, and then Al Jaffe on guitar, and uh, you know, as I said, we were together for quite a while. And, and those guys, the horns were just so strong and dominant. And those guys knew exactly what to do. So it really, you know, influenced me. And as I said, uh, you know, looking at going to the Apollo, seeing B.B. King, uh, you know, Bobby Bland, and then, of course, James Brown with the big horn section, that always, you know, got me going. And so uh, I was always, uh, uh, you know, into that. And when I have, I have a band out here, my Jim Payne's unit, and that's uh, we have two horns in, in that band, which is a, a tenor. Well, the saxophone player Ben Harrod plays all the horns, and then uh, we have a, a trumpet player uh, Dan Herrera usually, and then we also have an alto player uh, who sings, which is great. Excuse me. So guitar, bass, and drums. Mm-hmm. So I've continued with that and tried to kind of keep the horn thing. I just love the horn thing, you know. Right. And then you and you can kick the horns with the drums, and you know. 
mm-hmm. it just fills it out a lot different than just a, a trio. So I, I love that. And then, you know, I had a, when I was in New York, I was, uh, played a lot with Eric Person, the, the well-known, uh, alto player mm-hmm. and Jerry Z, uh, Jerry Zaslavsky, who's a great organ player. And we had a trio and I, you know, when I was playing in my garage way back when, when I heard Jimmy Smith and Jimmy McGriff and these guys, it was kind of bluesy shuffles, you know, and mm-hmm. blues. And I was like, this is pretty cool. You know? So as opposed to the, the R and B charts, I started, that's what got me into jazz, basically the organ trio thing. Right. So I've always had that as, you know, close to my heart. And in fact, now out here, I've got two groups that are organ trios, uh, um, and so I keep that going, you know, mm-hmm. um, so those are the two, you know, genres really my, my, my favorite, favorite genres. I played behind a lot of singers and everything and all that, but I've kind of gotten down to just the uh, instrumentals and, uh, we played, uh, with the kind of a tourist joint here with my, my funk band, the horn band. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we did that for, you know, every other week for almost two years. Nice. And, uh, that was a great run that we had. And then they realized that we had no singer and it was like, normally, uh, you know, those, those clubs are like, uh, you know, kind of, uh, more like top 40 clubs, you know, we right. were doing like funky Herbie Hancock and, you know, Larry Young or whatever, or Lonnie Smith. And it was danceable. People were dancing. Of course. Like, finally they, they say, well, I don't know. You don't have a singer. We got to get a singer. So, so that ended that run, but, it, but we, we got other gigs now in different places. So mm. anyway, I, I, I asked selfishly because the organ, I mean, I put out my own organ record and oh, I got to hear this and uh, I'll, I'll get you a copy of it uh, yeah. with Joe. I did it with Joey DeFrancesco's brother, Johnny. He's a guitar oh player. Really? Wow. Um, I didn't know he had a brother. Yeah. A really, really talented guitar player. Um, but I was in a band called the sermon named after the Jimmy Smith record. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did. Yeah. So, um, so I was wondering, you know, because I think there's there's two differences. There's sort of like, you know, the the super funk with the horns and everything, or like, you know, Oakland funk and all that kind of stuff, or like the Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, sort of, you know, Lonnie Smith kind of stuff, which is funky and it grooves, but it's not like, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's not funk. It's not like an Oakland mm-hmm. thing or anything like right, that. Right, right. So that's why I was selfishly asking that question. But also, you got to give me some. Uh, you got to you got to give me some listening recommendations too afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I want to let's talk specifically drumming uh, for a minute here. I want to be cognizant of your time, but I have just right. There's I think there's a little bit of sort of confusion about the linear thing and how to sort of get inside of that, how to make it groove. Um, is there, is there certain places that you suggest people start? Obviously your books are, are a great place to start. Uh, is there listening? Is there, is there maybe some things that, that, that you've seen over the years after teaching it for so many years that people that maybe there's some miss, um, you know, some misunderstandings about the style or things like that. So can you mm-hmm. give us some insight into that? Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I, I teach that, uh, I, you know, I teach for Berkeley online and, uh, I teach a little bit of linear stuff there, but I, and I also have another course that I did my, do myself, which is kind of intermediate to advance. I call it funk 2.0 and I do much more uh, of the linear thing there. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a hip word and everybody's like, wow, let's play linear, you know, like, but you know, it's pretty basic. The whole, the concept is you play one sound surface at a time. So it's not like, you know, two hands or right hand, right foot. Right. Uh, and that's the concept. Um, you know, I guess I first heard it with Mike Clark, uh, 
and uh, to try to figure out what it was. I didn't really know what it was. You know, I when I heard actual proof, the uh, famous Mike Clark tune yeah. uh, on Thrust, that totally blew me away. I was li- living in New York at the time and in my basement apartment there in the East Village, and I just put that on over and over again. So I tried to transcribe the first, like, uh, you know, 12 or 24 bars, whatever it was. And when I came out to San Francisco, I moved out here actually back in the late 70s for about three years, and I was up in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And I went to uh, see Mike, and I, I showed him this uh, transcription that I, as a way of kind of introducing myself, you know. And he looked at it and said, oh, is that what I played? You know, I mean, he had, you know, it was like, no idea kind of that, that that's what he did, but it wasn't what he did. And that was what my point is that I didn't realize the linear thing was happening that I didn't really understand it. So a lot of the stuff that I'd written out had two part coordination, right? Whereas he was just playing one thing. Like he, a lot of his thing is so bass drum, hi hat, snare drum, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so once I got that figured out, you know, it was opened a whole door to the thing, you know, a whole, whole, whole new, new concept. And, uh, and then I, then I worked on it, you know, and there's a, well, there is a, uh, Gary Chafee has a book, um, on it. And, uh, actually Mike Clark has a book called, uh, Fun- same as my original book, Funk Drumming Concepts, his book mm-hmm. is, where he just kind of plays a bunch of his grooves and that, and a lot of them are linear grooves. Right. But the, the main thing is that, People get hung up in, in the concept. They don't realize that most linear type grooves are a combination of linear and regular. You know, you'd have you know, bop. So you'd have lots of elements in the beat that are not linear mm-hmm. and some that are. So there's no that you shouldn't be trying to play the whole thing linear. And that's supposed to be really hip because it's. What it sounds like is the most important thing, mm-hmm. and and in Garibaldi and these, it's all about what the beat sounds like, and the linear thing is part of it, and it actually makes it easier to play certain sounds, you know. And you realize that when you're playing the hi hat and the snare drum at the same time, you know, you're not really hearing the hi hat that much. You know? mm-hmm. It's like the old Ringo Starr, you do shack, you know, he he just plays the left hand by itself, and uh, it's that idea. You don't have to be playing two or three things at the same time, and you don't have to be doing the whole thing linear. But once right. you get the linear idea, there's elements, you know, which are some of it's in my advanced funk drumming book as well, uh, which I'm very proud of. And it's all it's got videos of me playing everything in the book, so you can mm-hmm. see it. Um, and that's also available now digitally on my website, and I got the rights to that back from from Modern Drummer, um, and. Uh, I must plug my one book, my other book, which is, uh, which is Give the Drummer Some, which, uh, which got five stars from Modern Drummer. It's great. And it's basically biographies of, of 26 different funk drummers, you know, throughout the whole funk, what I, what I consider the funk era, kind of, you know, back to Earl Palmer and, you know, Fats Domino and all that coming up to, the, to like Earth, Wind and Fire and that kind of stuff. Uh, but that has a bunch of beats in the back of it which are also available digitally. And I've got that out. And now I finally got it. I don't have it right here. Anyway, I'm doing it print on demand, which I'm doing both my books, uh, advanced funk drumming and give the drummer some. So you can just go on my website and, and get it. And then uh, you can either 
go through Amazon and you'll get a hard copy. Or you can just go through the, my, my uh, delivery system there, which is called Payloads, and you get the digital copy along with the MP3s digitally and the, and the videos as well. So I'm pretty happy about how that's coming out. But uh, the linear thing is fun. But the other, the other thing about it is it's a little bit – it's so easy to – you, you know, you're, you're a drummer. It's like just to go it's like it's a lot easier than chpop. Right. So it, you have to watch the timing. You know, you can speed up playing linear. If you don't really keep the groove in your body, you know, in your lower mm-hmm. body and make that happen, that's the source of the groove. And your hands are kind of operating, feet are operating. But if you start to get, you know, tensed up and – and think about, you know, your hands and all, then it, you tend to move ahead in the time. And it's so easy with the linear thing that you have to watch it. But the possibilities of the cool sounds are great, you know. So right. I, I love it. So are you more of a technique guy or are you more of sort of a, a feel and, and I guess like feel and function? What, what, what is it? Feel and... Feeling funk shit? Is that what you said? Feeling funk? <laughs> yeah, feel and funk shit. Yeah. <laughs> feel and funk shit. I'm more into feeling funk shit. I mean, I, you know, when you start out, I mean, let's face it, you know, I. That's a know, good name for a book, by the way. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> write that down. Uh, yeah, it could, be, it could be acceptable these days. I don't know. It's like, what's this shit, man? You know, like, I mean, uh, you know, I had back in Bridgeport when I was with the accordion and I got into the drum pad. I had this record, Buddy Rich, you know, some EP, and I just listened to it. I had no, I was like, holy, holy shit, what the hell is he doing? You know, right. it was like just super fast stuff, you know. So, of course, I was in awe of that. Mm-hmm. And then when you kind of get into it, but I realized with the funk thing, there wasn't a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I realized I had to learn how to read. I, I, I went to New York and I studied with Sonny Igo, and uh, I also studied with uh, Henry Adler. And, you know, rudiments and reading and, you know, technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was seriously into technique. And, uh, but now I'm not seriously into technique. I'm more into, you know, feel. And, and I don't think you need, you know, Buddy Rich's chops in order to play great drums. You know, look at, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm working with, I did work with Clyde Stubblefield. And, uh, you know, he, he can't read. And, right. uh, but he can memorize, you know, which is a whole other, you know, concept of doing it. But, you know, he doesn't have those kind of chops, but he has constructs grooves that are, you know, undeniably uh, funky, you know, and yeah. strong. And it's about the feel. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the technique thing, I think, is kind of overrated. Even though as a youngster, I was into it, you know, but mm-hmm. I think that you have to have a feel. You have to have a I, I teach a lot of, you know, feeling the internal pulse of your body. You know, I feel that there is a something called, I call body movement, which you move. It's not your heartbeat. You know, I tried that with a stethoscope, you know, put it on my heart and start playing along with, but no, this is just kind of an internal thing that you just relax and kind of get into. Mm-hmm. And you can actually change the tempo of it. You could go faster if you want, you know, sure. if you can play with that as your source of groove and tap into that and listen to it and not get, you know, too freaked out and dividing the beat up and mathematical. Forget that. Just feel that like a drummer, like Roger Hawkins and these guys, you know, that's, that's what they're feeling. And that puts down the groove, man. And that's, you know, it takes a lot to get people to, to do that. And it's, you know, it, you could play two and four and, you know, that's all you need to play. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, sometimes that's, that's enough. You know, you all, the, the big problem is your brain is saying, man, I should play some, 
other shit in here. You know, I should right. put some notes in here. You know, what is this? You know, but no, you know, it's like that's the idea of sitting there, playing the groove, concentrating on the groove, not letting your mind, you know, think about lunch or the girl in the front row or any of that. Right. You know, that's that's what's happening. That's the most important thing. You know, mm-hmm. if you can add technique to that and then they're, you know, Gad and other Steve Jordan, every great drummers who can do that. That's cool. But if you don't have the the groove, you're not going to get hired. You know, mm-hmm. that's to me, that's more important than, you know, than anything. Than anything else, of course. And I, th- I, me personally, I think it's harder to play a quarter note groove at 50 beats a minute than to play at 220 and do all this crazy stuff. Totally agree. It's, you know? it's harder to play a ballad than it is to play an up-tempo song. Yeah. There's a lot of space. Mm-hmm. That's a, a band director that I know. He always said if, if a guy was bugging him to sit in all the time, he would finally let him sit in. He would pick the slowest ballad that he could possibly <laughs> play and then and tell him to play with brushes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have a student that I just did that to. He's very aggressive in, in, at Berkeley, you know, and uh, he's he's good, but he's always like, <clears throat> you know, I'm thinking, he must have come out of heavy metal or something. But finally I gave him this Horace Silver tune, my own sweet way, with it's like, <clears throat> Yep. And I, you know, I made him do that and he did it with brushes and he, he did pretty well. I think he finally got, got the point, you know, <laughs> and he's like, Oh, okay. Now I'll, I'll learn how to I mean, it's a lot of it is about attitude, you know, yeah. like what's the song, you know, who are you playing for? Who's in the band? You know, it's a lot of psychological, you want to meld in, you want to make it as good as possible for the people that you have in the band and they mm-hmm. could change. You know? And then, and then you, what, what kind of a gig is it? Is it a, you know, is it a, a wine tasting gig or is it a restaurant gig where there's somebody right in front of you on a, at a table or is it a, a concert, a theater or is it a huge concert with 10,000 people? I mean, it's, all that matters. Right. And I think there's the I think the listeners get tired of me saying this, but I'll say it again, that I think that YouTube sensationalizes a lot of the the chops and and, oh. you know, all of that stuff versus, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is amazing. I think that there are some amazing players out there who have just insane facility. I mean, there oh, like know. there's some guys out there that look like athletes, you know? Yeah, well, that's another way of thinking of it, yeah. I mean, I see these things in modern drummer, you know, it's nine over seven and three over ten, you know, I'm thinking, wow, that's... I used to be interested in that, you know, but right. three over four is about as far as I got on it. That's enough for me, but I mean, <laughs> now it's like I don't like to play odd times, you know, but... But and, and there's a place for that, you know. Mm-hmm. I guess for instrumental music, people are into it. But uh, I, I'm, uh, I don't know whether it's just because I'm older or what. But uh, you know, I'm focusing on other things. Not mm-hmm. that I'm not learning and working on it, but I'm not working on nine over ten or whatever. You know? Right, right, one hundred percent. So if people, I know that you you teach privately. So you teach through Berkeley online, right? Right. And then you have your own private practice as well, too, right? Right. So do you and do that? Go ahead. I was going to say, do you do that in person and online? No, I, I taught in person many years in New York. You know, at Drummers Collective and uh, Drummers World and various drum stores and stuff. But no, now I do everything online. Okay. I'm out here in the country, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, I, I did a whole course, very similar to the Berkeley thing. I have like I, eighteen or nineteen lessons now. Okay, which I which I do online, and that is uh, you know a, a lot of uh, Videos of me demonstrating stuff, a lot of song examples, you know, this is bringing out this particular thing, whatever types of ghost notes, and then uh, and transcriptions of grooves, 
And then also at the end, you have get a couple of tracks without drums to play along to. And that's a, I'm changing it up now, having every, the lessons I did have was having everybody buy like a, four lessons and then kind of proceed through the course. But now I'm going to do more of a script, subscription thing where they, they get access to all the videos and they can take which ones they want. Okay. And uh, they have the option to send them to me if they want, and I will comment on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a little more money, or they can just surf around and check them out, which I find a lot of people seem to to enjoy. But if they're very, you know, complete lessons with a bunch of material, a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff in there. So right. uh, that's what I call Funk 2.0, and that's uh, starting to pick up. It's being, uh, you know, I got some, some good students in that one as well. So I do cool. both things. The Berkeley thing is cranking along. Just started today, a new, a new uh, well, actually started Monday, a new semester, the uh, Oh, okay. okay. And that's, 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 that's great. A lot of those Berkeley people end up taking my, my funk 2.0 course. Oh, do they? Uh, as well, because it's a little bit more, it's more challenging than the, uh, than the Berkeley. Berkeley course is good, but I kind of did this as a, as a sequel mm-hmm. sort of a thing. So I got it's you. more intermediate, uh, people who, who have some more experience. It's understandable. So, that's so been fun. all of that information is at funkydrummer.com, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I have different, you know, different, my books and some, you know, different stuff. There's something called funk packs, which are very small little, you know, four ninety nine, uh, where you get transcriptions and you get me, uh, demonstrating the grooves, particular subject of, you know, and there's about, I don't know, 10 or 15 of those. Uh, so I got a variety of stuff on there, you know, Okay. And I, so your books, your website, all that, and I know you're on Facebook as well, right? Right, right. Okay. I should be more on Facebook, but I am, <laughs> I am on Facebook. I, I think guess. we all should be. I think we all should be <laughs> on there more. And I, at the same time, I think that we should be on there less. So yeah, I know it's, it's, it's a love hate relationship. Um, but I will link to all that stuff. I'll link to your social media okay. channels, your website, your Great. books, uh, all of that. And I recommend that everyone check out the stuff that you have going on. I mean, you, you understand this genre, uh, I think, as well as anyone in it, and you have a ton of knowledge to share with everybody. So everyone listening, uh, check out Jim's stuff. Also, I want to thank you personally for taking the time to chat with me, sharing your story, sharing your, yeah. your wisdom. It's inspiring. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, I would, it's been you know, fun. I gotta. I, I'm gonna make a trip down to see. You. I'll take you out to lunch. Yeah, no, I gotta talk. Right, I just gotta, got. A, I just got a new car. I came from New York. Oh. I didn't do. I didn't need a. Uh, I didn't need a car, so I just got a car. I'm gonna drive down the coast a little bit. And it's beautiful. Come down the coast from you know right down the coast from Half Moon Bay, meeting Monterey, and you know, yeah, have some some fish. That would but, be. Uh, uh, that would be fantastic. I mean, I, and I have to reciprocate. You know, the people like you that that really understand. The, the the genre and the music and the, the and and take the time to really uh, research what's what your you know your your people are are, are about before you talk to them and uh, really organize show man I think that's great to have somebody like you out there putting out the the good stuff and, and inspiring people well thank you so, I appreciate yeah. it it's a it's definitely a labor of love and I I feel fortunate to be able to talk to guys like you on a daily basis so this show would be nothing without you guys and without the people listening so I'm just the I'm just the middleman but I do appreciate that <laughs> yeah you're more than that <laughs> well thank okay. you Jim and again okay. thank you for for taking the time to chat and thanks for being part of the podcast okay we'll stay in touch all right I definitely will and I will talk to you soon Okay, Nick. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. All right. Adios.
So there you have it, the one and only Jim Payne. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did, and I am definitely going to have Jim back on the podcast again. Also, as with every podcast, there is show notes for this, and you can check it out at drummersresource.com forward slash session 260. It has all the links about everything that we talked about, all of Jim's books and all of that fun stuff. So check that out. Also, if you haven't yet, please rate, review the podcast on iTunes. It's super simple to do. And I definitely appreciate it because it helps the podcast show up higher in the, sh- in the search results and more people find out about it, more people find out about it, more people get hip to drumming. So if you could do that, I would appreciate it. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.